Hey everybody, welcome back. This episode looks like it's going to be a two-part episode uh, released at one time, so sorry for the delay. This one's going to take a little bit longer to release. Uh, I started out thinking of these as two separate episodes, um, and actually as I was developing each, it was looking like possibly I was going to be contradicting myself in these episodes. Um, and then the more that I was diving into this second episode, which may contradict the first, the more that I found that they actually supported one another and went hand in hand, and uh, the two subjects complemented each other well. So I think I'm going to release them together as a single subject and see how that goes. The first part is going to be about modern American military strategy, uh, the way that Americans view the military and the use of the military, uh, and some ways that I think that reframing is necessary in the way that we think about the military, its appropriate use, and warfare. The second part was intended to be an entirely separate episode uh, which was going to be a deep dive, and still is going to be a deep dive, into a book, or more accurately, a paper called Unrestricted Warfare, which was written by two colonels in the Chinese People's Liberation Army uh, in 1999. And my intent there was mostly to open people's eyes to the way that many of our enemies view warfare and many of the tactics that they are using or are open to using to defeating us. Uh, and this paper, which was written in 1999, it's really interesting to read because you can see a lot of the things in here uh, playing out today. But interestingly, the conclusion of this paper by these two Chinese colonels tied very closely in with the uh, conclusions and proposals I make in the first part of this podcast. So I decided to tie them into a two-parter on general thoughts about strategy, uh, or as I call it here, strategery, a reference to an SNL skit in which Will Ferrell satirizes George W. Bush in his debates with Al Gore. And I chose that title because the word strategery quickly became associated with Bush's strategic failings in general, uh, though I think that when people look at Bush's strategic failings, they often miss the forest for the trees. So let's kick off part one with one of the more famous strategic bumblings of George W. Bush. Uh, on May 1st, 2003, President Bush stood aboard the USS Abe Lincoln, in front of a sign that said mission accomplished and declared that the uh, we had prevailed in the battle of iraq years later as bloody battles continued many people would reference this moment as an example of president bush's lack of foresight however i look at it as a failure to set clear goals adhere to them and adapt to changes in an appropriate manner Imagine a world, just for a moment, where the Bush administration had said, we came here to topple the Saddam administration, and we don't care what happens in the power vacuum that follows, and then pulled out in January 2004. The timeline would go something like this. March 2003, invasion begins. May 2003, victory declared. 
December 2003, Saddam captured. January 2004, the U.S. withdraws, victorious in Iraq. Now, I'm not saying that's the correct mission to have. I'm just saying that's the correct way to have a mission. There is a clear goal, the right tools are used, and mission accomplished is recognized and mission creep is kept in check. Similarly, Afghanistan has a timeline that looks like this. October 2001, invasion begins. By December 2001, the Taliban is ousted and Hamid Karzai is elected president. By May 2011, Osama bin Laden is killed. At either of those two points, the U.S. military could have pulled out and declared victory if these two endpoints were their decided outcome. Now, in both these wars, there was plenty of reason to decide to stick around. In Iraq, the vacuum left a lot of area for question as to who would rise to power. Additionally, several extremist groups started to pop up, some of which would eventually turn into al-Qaeda in Iraq. And in Afghanistan, well, right now as we withdraw from Afghanistan, if you're watching closely, we can see what would have happened because it's happening at this moment. The Taliban is quickly retaking the country. In my mind, there's nothing wrong, strategically at least, with saying that we need to maintain a U.S. presence in these areas to combat rising terrorist groups. In fact, it's a strategy that I agree with in many areas. My problem is the way that we went about doing this. After the initial toppling of regimes, goals were never clear and rarely stated, and I suspect they weren't stated because they didn't exist at all. Mission creep ran amok, and what started as winning hearts and minds quickly turned to nation-building, something the U.S. has never been good at, and the U.S. military is not the right tool for. In any venture, setting a well-defined, realistic goal is one of the first keys to success. And it doesn't take a degree in history to know that the U.S. is great at removing hostile regimes, but I struggle to think of many examples of us successfully installing friendly regimes. Another essential key to success is using the right tool for the job. The U.S. military is made to kill people and blow things up, let's be honest. It makes perfect sense to leave U.S. military in place to kill people who threaten our way of life. It doesn't make any sense to leave these same people in place to try to build a new nation. And this is where ridiculous rules of engagement came into play. We left these people behind to be nation builders instead of war fighters, expected them to do both, and gave them the ability to do neither. Okay, Joe, great job fighting a bloody violent war to destroy a regime and their infrastructure. Now I'm going to handcuff you with these rules of engagement and expect that that's enough to teach you how to build the nation back. Instead of magically turning soldiers into nation builders, we left people with two jobs and the ability to do neither. Nation building, because that's not what soldiers do, and war fighting because we tied their hands behind their backs. There was a lot of talk about winning the war and unwinnable wars, but nobody thought about the fact that if you take away the point system or the clock in any sporting event, it doesn't matter if you have the best coaches and the best athletes in the world, there's no winning that game. And to use another metaphor, if the goal really was nation building, then we brought one tool to the construction site, and that tool was a sledgehammer. 
Once the old property was torn down, we failed to bring in any new tools to help us build and just put a foam pad over the head of that sledgehammer. I truly believe, and I will say unapologetically, that I believe that we, the United States, have the greatest military in the world and the greatest resources at our disposal. Wars for us are only unwinnable when we fail to use our tools properly or fail to set appropriate achievable goals. Soldiers are a diverse group uh, with diverse opinions, and I won't pretend to speak for all or even most, but I will do my best to summarize the feelings that I've gathered from the ones that I know. Uh, and when asked whether they feel that their actions overseas amounted to a wasted sacrifice, my sense is that most believe that their individual actions were not wasted on the tactical level except when on the tactical level they were handcuffed by unduly strict uh, rules of engagement which were meant more to play out on CNN and keep commanders out of the hot seat than they were to win battles and wars. Uh, but accepting those experiences, which there are many of, I believe that most of them think that their actions did actually amount to something in fighting the rising tide of certain terrorist groups. And in this way, I think that most also believe that even at the strategic level, uh, they were effective to some degree as it pertains to national defense and fighting the spread of terrorism. Where many do seem to feel that effort was wasted is on the strategic level uh, where it applies to achieving a long-term goal. At some point, objectives became completely lost, and victories that at one point had already been attained became impossible to achieve. And this brings us to one of the advantages that most of our enemies have over us. There's no regime change. There's no policy swing. There's no changing, blunting, and obscuring of objectives. There's only singular focus. Now, I'm not saying that's the path for us to take, but it is something important for us to understand and consider. Change and fresh perspective can be a good thing. The world changes, society changes, the battlefield changes, and we should be highly adaptable. But with each new objective, there should be clear stated goals that are measurable and attainable. In addition, the goals that we set should be rooted in both morality and reality. The idea of bringing liberty to other nations is a highly noble one, but it's hard enough to get free nations to stay free without voting away their rights, as we see here in our own country. The goal of knocking down illiberal regimes can be seen as both moral and achievable by the tool of the U.S. military. But building a nation in the tradition of liberty is something that can only be done voluntarily by the people of the nation that will be then wielding that liberty. You can teach others your conception of freedom, but you cannot force them to be free. Freedom requires a steely resolve that even we have wavered in lately. New schools, soccer balls, and candy bars will go a long way to winning hearts and minds and gaining friends to help defeat a common enemy, but they won't convince someone to suddenly change their philosophy. And I'm not saying that we should turn our backs on oppression because there's nothing we can do, so let's just leave it alone. 
Not at all. What I'm saying is we're far better at fighting oppressors than we are at convincing people to live a Western-style democracy. And this is especially true when the tool we bring to the job site is the United States military. Their job is to kick over the structure in place, not to emplace a new structure. If we want to do both jobs, we need to invent a new tool. Another advantage our enemies have with regards to the lack of regime change is fewer internal politics associated with their wars. One regime starts a war and ends a war, so their only goal is to win. For us, this is rarely the case, and it seems that quickly these wars become more about winning on the battlefield here at home in Congress and in front of the American people than it is about winning overseas and securing the objective. This can be seen in President Obama's original goal to draw down Afghanistan and then later decision to compromise on the number of troops to surge to Afghanistan where neither side got what they wanted and no clear objective could be ascertained. But it's far more clearly seen when President Trump moved to draw down some troops in the Middle East, namely in Syria, and the Democratic Party, which has been looking for drawdowns in the Middle East since the Bush administration, suddenly got up in arms, declaring that this was a terrible strategy that would leave us open to terrorist attacks. Meanwhile, the Republicans, who had long championed all of the wars in the Middle East as necessary to fight the rising tide of terrorism, were suddenly championing a drawdown, stating that this was an unnecessary war. It seems that most politicians are far more concerned with scoring points with constituents through clever rhetoric and sound bites than they are with achieving goals and winning actual wars, or even knowing what wars are about anymore. And this explains why so many politicians feel the need to meddle in wars rather than setting policy and letting trusted generals achieve goals. They're not concerned with steering wars towards victory. They're concerned with steering wars towards what plays on the news while they're in office. Wars are by definition political, but the politics which guide them should be global, not internal, and the objectives should transcend partisanship. I am in no way anti-war. Wars can be necessary, they can be just, and a free nation has the right to defend itself, fight oppression, and ensure the continued existence of liberty in the world. Many men and women in uniform have sacrificed more than you and I can imagine to defend us from dangers we probably didn't even know were there. We should respect them enough to set them up for success by utilizing them in a way that sets clear, attainable objectives without setting undue restrictions, allowing them to move decisively from victory to victory. When a conflict calls for combat, we need to learn to let our soldiers do their jobs and get out of the way of our own success. And when a conflict does not call for combat, we need to learn to draw on other tools and not send soldiers into combat where we've made conflict illegal. These are broad ideas that I'm still working through, so as always, I may be wrong, but that ability to test ideas, learn, and grow is what makes this country great. So be honest, allow yourself to be wrong sometimes, and be fearless in the exercise of your rights.
If you want to follow on social media, it's tbh underscore I may be wrong on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with any questions, comments, feedback, it's to be honest, I may be wrong, all one word at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.